Hello, my name is Meg. Welcome to the Unedited Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. The goal of this podcast is to help you both develop and enjoy the habit of daily Bible reading and prayer. About 20 years ago, at a very low spot in my life, I was convicted to begin this simple discipline, and I looked up years down the road to see how God had used this habit to heal deep places in my heart and do incredible things in my life. So over the years, it's really become my greatest passion to help others get to know Jesus through His Word and through His presence. Through this podcast, I'm hoping to help you see the Word of God with fresh eyes, to learn to slow down with your Bible, and ultimately to fall in love with your Bible and to fall in love with Jesus. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so grateful to have you. Again, so grateful to have you here. What a treasure. Hello and welcome. I don't know about you, but where I am today, we have lots and lots and lots of snow, and it was beautiful snow. It was the type of snow that clung to every little branch and every little twig and every blade of grass, and it was so beautiful. But with that said, this is the 98th episode, and like I mentioned last week, I am going to be rolling out a giveaway on Instagram and Facebook coming up um, in the next couple of days. Keep an eye out for that. I'm going to announce the winner on the 100th episode. Today, I am going to share a pretty simple thought. I just want to encourage you to let the Bible stop you. I know that every single week I say that I want to help you learn to slow down with your Bible. And sometimes we need to do more than slow down. We need to let the Word of God arrest our attention and stop us dead in our tracks. There are so many times where something will just jump off the pages of my Bible as I read. And I'm sure you've experienced this. The Word of God is alive. It's living. It's active. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is God, and God is the Word. Your Bible is alive. Your Bible is active. And it wants to speak to you, and it wants to speak to your situation every day. And sometimes that happens in a little bit of a more dramatic fashion than others. I certainly don't experience this every single time I read my Bible, but I will have one or two, maybe three, maybe four, maybe more times a week where something literally just arrests my attention, and I have to stop right there and dig in. And last night as I was teaching Bible study, we talked very briefly about two Greek words um, that are used in the Bible for the word of God or the word word. One is logos and one is rhema. And I am not a theologian and I can't say that I have a super deep knowledge of the difference between these two. I did look up the definitions in Strong's and Thayer's, etc. this morning. But again, I'm not a theologian. Um, But the general idea is that the Logos is a word given generally. It's the whole Bible, for example. And a rhema word is a word that's given specifically. So a specific scripture for you, for your situation. Vine's Expository Dictionary explains it like this. The significance of rhema, as distinct from Logos, is exemplified in the injunction to take, open quote, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God in Ephesians 6.17. 
Here, the reference is not to the whole Bible as such, but to the individual scripture, which the Spirit brings to our remembrance for use in time of need. And I love this line. It says, a prerequisite being the regular storing of the mind with scripture. So Vine's Dictionary is saying, rhema is a specific word that God brings to your memory in a time of need to use as a weapon. It's not necessarily the whole Bible. And then I love that they say this requires you to be regularly storing scriptures in your mind. I find in my life, and I'm not going to tell you this is an exhaustive way, but what I would consider rhema words typically in my own life would be in my thoughts where God will just bring a scripture to my mind. Sometimes I'll be sitting at my desk or driving in my car or talking to him and literally just a phrase of a scripture or a specific verse will come to my mind. Sometimes I don't even remember that I have that verse memorized or maybe I have enough of it memorized where I can look it up. Um, And so he does speak in our thoughts and oftentimes that is with scripture with a rhema word. Secondly, as I read the Bible, and this is what I'm encouraging you today, is to allow God to bring a rhema word, a specific scripture for you out of your general reading, out of the whole entirety of the word of God. And then thirdly, in conversations, there are so many times where I'll be talking to somebody or I'll be teaching Bible study and a verse will just pop into my head. Again, it's a kind of, it's a rhema word, what I would consider a rhema word, where God just brings this scripture that's filed away somewhere to the forefront of my mind. And I read this uh, quote earlier online. I'm not endorsing this book or author, and I'm not even going to credit them. Um, But this, I thought, was very good. It says, The Logos is the general word of God that communicates his ability to do something or his general will on a matter, while a rhema word is a word that the Holy Spirit quickens to a specific person for a specific situation. For example, the Logos is a well of water, while the Rhema is a bowl of water from that well. I thought that was a really fascinating way of looking at it. The Logos is the whole well of water, while the Rhema is a bowl of water from that well. Then they went on to say that the Logos is all the keys on a piano, while the Rhema is a single key playing. Um, It says, the Logos and the Rhema are always in alignment with one another. I cannot underscore and highlight that enough. They will never contradict one another. Of note is this statement that the Rhema could be a scripture or a word spoken to you by someone or quickened directly to your heart. So I like that quote. And I thought that kind of helped shed a little bit of light on the difference between the two. 2 Corinthians 3.17, or 3, is it 3.7, I might have the wrong reference on that. But it says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every rhema be established. So if someone speaks a word to you, or God brings a word to your spirit, or the scripture stops you and a thought leaps out at you off the pages, we always want to have supporting scripture. So when God stops you in his word, stop right there. Dead in your tracks, pay attention, dig in, slow down. But always look for other supporting scriptures for that rhema. God's logos, and I think I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. I think it's more like logos, but we'll go with logos. will always 
corroborate. It will always back up a rhema word, a specific word for you. They will never, ever, ever be in conflict. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to the episode I did called Run Revelations Through the Word. But with that said, with that word of caution, let him stop you. Some of the most deeply impacting things that I have personally written about have been from moments where I've allowed God to stop me dead in my tracks as I was in my word. Sometimes this is just during routine Bible reading. Sometimes it's in moments where I just picked up my Bible randomly. Sometimes it's in times where I ran to my Bible for refuge. And so again, let the word of God stop you. Let it slow you down and let it speak to you. God wants to minister to you through his word for your situation and for your day specifically. Today, I'm going to share an unedited journal entry. I felt God prompt me very strongly to share this entry this week. And this is one of those entries that has stuck with me. I've written about, I don't even know how many things, probably thousands, if not 1,000 things. I've written so, so many things. But this one, again, has really stuck with me. It's been very personally encouraging. And I don't want to cross anybody's theology with this entry. Um, But we understand that God is always capable of doing the miraculous. His hand is never shortened. There is nothing that's impossible with him. He can always do the miraculous. However, on the other side of that, we understand that God is sovereign and God does not always answer our prayers the way that we would choose or the way that we would hope. God operates on a totally different spectrum from a totally different vantage point. He doesn't come from a human perspective and he doesn't come from time. He's working on an eternal scale. And so again, I just wanted to give that little uh, disclaimer before I read this today. Today's unedited journal entry is called, Now Elisha Fell Sick. Now Elisha fell sick. As I was praying, I opened my Bible and felt to read right where the Bible had opened. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. Hold the show. God completely broke me with that line. Seriously flat broke me. To understand, let's back up, way up. Elijah was Elisha's predecessor. I always remember this because J comes before SH. Elijah was mightily used by God and is famous for calling fire from heaven with a 63-word prayer. The fire consumed not only the sacrifice on Elijah's altar, but also the wood under it and the rocks of the altar itself and evaporated the four barrels of precious water that had been poured over the sacrifice. This is just one of and probably the most prolific miracles of Elijah. Shortly after this incredible display of God's supernatural power, Elijah faces intense depression to the point that he requested for himself that he might die. 1 Kings 19.4 God sends an angel who bakes a cake for him and Elijah is strengthened by it for 40 days and goes to a cave in Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. While Elijah is in the cave, 
he has incredible encounters with God and learned that God's voice was not bold and dramatic, but a still small voice. During that encounter with the gentle voice of God, this mighty man of God is given instructions to anoint the next king of Syria, to anoint the next king of Israel, and he is told, Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. So Elijah left the cave, and at the instruction of the Lord, found Elisha his replacement. When he finds Elisha, he casts his mantle upon him, and the chapter ends by saying, Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Elisha was called, but he served. Elisha's earliest days of ministry were to be the personal attendant to this great man of God. His ministry began as a servant. We do not hear Elisha's name mentioned again until 2 Kings 2 verse 1, which says, And it came to pass, when the Lord would take Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal, knowing full well that this is his last day with this great man of God. Elijah tries to convince him to stay behind, but Elisha refuses to part ways with him. As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. He is given multiple opportunities to stay behind, but his loyalty to this man who has mentored him for roughly six years causes him to refuse to part ways. They finally come to Jericho, and Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. When they have crossed the Jordan, Elijah asks Elisha what he would like him to do for him before he is taken away. And Elijah's instant and only response is, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Elisha or Elijah replies that he has asked a difficult thing. But if Elisha sees him when he is taken from him, it shall be so unto thee. The text carries on, and it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha sees his mentor taken to heaven in one of the most dramatic exits from the world ever recorded. And the Bible says that he saw Elijah no more, He took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. And while a double portion of Elijah's spirit was a difficult thing, we see that Elisha went on to perform exactly twice as many miracles as Elijah. Elisha's double portion career went on to include Naaman's healing, the raising of the Shunammite woman's son, and a prayer over his servant Gehazi's eyes to see that they that be with us are more than they that be with them. For 60 to 70 years, this mighty man of God served the northern tribes of Israel through many powerful miracles and prophecies. And yet, in spite of serving Elijah faithfully, in spite of serving Israel faithfully, and in spite of having a double portion of Elijah's spirit, we read in 2 Kings 13, 14, Now Elisha was fallen sick of the sickness whereof he died. As soon as I read that line the other day, God broke me. 
not everyone gets a miracle. While Elisha had a double portion of Elijah's anointing, he didn't exit earth in a dramatic supernatural event ushered out in a fiery chariot pulled by fiery horses. While Elisha had caused oil to be multiplied to provide for a widow and prayed to smite the Syrian army with blindness, his own body fell sick and there was no apparent miracle for him. While on his deathbed, the reigning king of Israel, Joash, visits him and weeps over his face. He speaks, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. These were the same exact words Elisha had spoken to Elijah at his translation, yet the chariot that took Elisha into eternity was not fiery and visible. Elisha's departure was death by natural causes. It was sickness whereof he died. This line is proof that we all live under the effects of the fall. We all live in the ravages of death and decay, illness and injury. The costs of the curse are meted out to one and all, and the effects of sin on the human race have not yet been completely reversed. God could have given Elisha another fiery chariot, or he could have performed a bold, dramatic miracle and raised this faithful servant from his deathbed, but he did not. He allowed his prophetic, powerful life to be snuffed out by an unnamed sickness. Don't judge your faith by a miracle or a lack thereof. Elisha's illness was not an indicator of his faith or an indictment on his life. His death from sickness was scripted by the sovereignty of God. God is always able to perform the miraculous, but God does not always perform the miraculous. This brings to mind two sets of individuals mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. The, writers of, the writer of Hebrews has just gone through a litany of faith heroes, and in verse 32 he states that he's running out of time to mention more heroic figures. He lists off a few names, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Then he says what they did, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead to life again. Boom, wow, that's faith as we often think of it. Results, visible outcomes, response from God, supernatural, divine miracles. But the writer goes on with the second group of heroes. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is not faith as we would often think of it. Being sawn in two is not a happy ending. 
Being killed with a sword is not the outcome we would assume for a person of faith. But the writer clarifies, the first group obtained promises. The second group obtained a good report through faith, even though they didn't receive the promise. The lack of miracles and absence of a supernatural display of power was not a statement on their faith or on God's goodness. Those who did not receive a preferred outcome are listed in the Faith Hall of Fame right along with those who did. This is important because the enemy is quick to lie to us when our prayers are not answered in the way we hope. He is quick to see disappointment and doubt. He is quick to whisper words that erode our faith and cast God's faithfulness in an unfavorable light. He is quick to bring accusations that somehow it's our fault. We didn't pray right, fast enough, on and on he drones, using the lack of a miracle to drive a wedge between us and God. His ultimate goal is to sever our connection from our source and strip the shield of faith from our grasp. But faith is not an outcomes. Faith is a firm, unshakable belief in the ability of God. Faith leads to action, and faith is holding on and enduring when God chooses not to exercise his supernatural ability. Faith is a resolution to proclaim God's capability and miracle power, and it is a resolution to hold on to his sovereignty when he withholds the miracle. We must choose to hold the shield of faith, wherewith you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked with a white-knuckled grasp when we don't see the performance of God in the way we've prayed or on our timetable. God is God. God is sovereign. God reigns from eternity, so unaffected as we are by human constraints and limitations of time. He is just as powerful when he sends a fiery chariot as he is when he allows the sickness whereof we die to ebb and erode our life source. So when I am not seeing my desired answer to prayer, when I am not perceiving God moving on my behalf, let me remember that Elisha fell sick of the sickness whereof he died. Let me remember that some in Hebrews 11 obtained promises and others obtained a good report without receiving promises. Let me parrot and reiterate the words of Job while in the middle of severe testing who boldly stated, though he slay me, Yet will I trust him. Let me follow in the footsteps of faith heroes, both Elisha's with their fiery chariots and Elisha's with their terminal diagnosis. Let my faith be in the character and nature of God, the ability of God, the blood of Jesus and forgiveness made available by it, the word of God and its sure promises. Let my faith be in the assurance of salvation, having made my calling and election sure, Let it be in the reality of eternity and the hope of heaven. Let my faith be in the goodness and the faithfulness of God and not in the performance of God. Let my pursuit be his heart and not his signs and wonders. If and when he does signs and wonders, I'll rejoice. But if he chooses another route, let me sit in the ashes and with Job say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away, and I trust him. If he sends a fiery chariot, I'll go, and if he sends the sickness wherever I die, I'll go. Let me trust his sovereignty in spite of appearances. You see, sometimes the lack of a miracle opens the door for future miracles. 
Elisha's story doesn't stop here. A few short verses later, we read, And Elisha died, and they buried him. That carries a sense of finality. The epitaph on his miracle career has been chiseled. But the scripture carries on. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. And it came to pass, as they were burying a man, they spied a band of men, and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down, he touched the bones of Elisha, and he revived and stood up on his feet. Because as a direct result of Elisha not getting a miracle, someone else got a miracle. The anointing of Elisha's double portion was still resident in his decaying bones, and because God in his sovereignty had not performed a miracle for Elisha, someone else got their miracle. If God says no, keep trusting. What seems to be only a sepulcher may be just in fact the makings of a miracle for someone coming behind you. It may just so happen to be that God has something up ahead that we can't see yet. When God sends sickness instead of a chariot, keep trusting. Your unanswered prayer may be the key to a miracle in the next generation. That again was a little entry, kind of not too little actually, but it was called Now Elisha Fell Sick. That whole entire entry and all the times that that thought has ministered to me came out of a moment where Literally, my eyes fell on my Bible, and it was just one little line that God used. Such a line that I would normally not stop and pay attention to. But again, God has used it so deeply in my life personally. And so today, just a simple reminder to let God's Word stop you, to slow you down, to stop you dead in your tracks. Our Bibles are not a checklist item. They're not a race. They're how we hear from God. And sometimes hearing from him is a rhema word. It's a specific word for you in your moment, in your situation. So let the Bible stop you. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. I look forward to meeting up with you again next Friday. If you have questions or to download a typed or a handwritten transcript of today's entry, you can visit meganedited.com. For now, go grab your journal and your Bible. I look forward to the power of this habit in your life. This is unedited. This is for you. Happy, happy, happy Friday.